So good evening, everybody. We're actually going to jump straight into another little video, but just a quick background of the video, just to set it up. It's from uh, one of the Diary of the Wimpy Kid movies. Um, one of my daughters used to watch them, and I quite liked them. Just set the scene. Two children. Parents have gone away for the night. One instruction. Don't have a party. We join them the morning after the night before. Let's watch. Oh, I love that clip. Right, confession time. Anyone here want to confess to ever doing that here? Parents do look around for your kids. Oh, Tom's put his hand up at the back. We can pray for you later. Um, what I love about that, uh, that clip is the, it's the incredible effort and energy we see from two teenagers just moments after they wake up. I don't ever recall seeing that in my house. I don't ever recall as a teenager suddenly going from lying down to like fifth gear in five seconds like that. Has anybody else ever seen that? It doesn't, it doesn't happen, does it? So what could have motivated those two children to suddenly be so active? Correct. It's fear, isn't it? And what is the fear of? It's the fear of their parents coming home and them being judged harshly. They're scared of receiving negative judgment from their parents and their unexpected early return galvanises them to action. They don't want their parents to know that they've messed up, that they've been disobedient and not done what they've been asked to do. There's perhaps a fear of punishment as well a fear of guilt and a realisation that they've done wrong. And it's that fear that motivates them to do, try this elaborate cover-up. I don't know if you saw it just at the end, but they realise that replacement door that they've put on the, the bathroom doesn't have a lock on it. To cut a long story short, they do eventually get caught. But I think what's amazing about it is we all found it funny and amusing watching it. And we didn't have to have any of that explained to us, did we? We all instinctively knew why they were suddenly motivated to action and wanted to go and tidy up the house. And the reason we instinctively knew, I would like to suggest, is because this is something that we all naturally do. Maybe not tidy up really quickly after an illegal party in our house. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think every single one of us here will regularly hide behaviours, actions from others for fear of being judged negatively. I know I do. And I hope I'm not alone. Tonight, we're continuing, as we've heard, our series through the Apostles' Creed. And we're looking at this line, as Patrick and Holly shared at the beginning, that says this, He, that's Jesus, will come again 
to judge the living and the dead. Now that's a pretty catch-all phrase. There's no escape from judgment because I would suggest that the vast majority of us here tonight are either alive or dead. Okay, so we're all going to be judged. Now I don't know how that leaves you feeling right now. I'm going to pray again and then we're going to jump in and there's a few things that I want us to look at as we unpack exactly what this statement means. And if you're feeling a bit scared from it, why perhaps you shouldn't be as fearful as perhaps you may be at the moment. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this line, I do pray you'll open our eyes to be able to see you more clearly. Lord, as I speak... Um, Lord, I just, we just want your presence here amongst us. So come and please take and guide my words, Lord, and help people to know you more deeply. Amen. So as we look at this line, I, I want to do um, two things, actually. First, I want us to look at this topic of judgment in, in general and how we as people generally go around judging other people and how God would want us to do it. And then we're going to sort of flip it and see how God judges us. And there is a correlation between the two, I promise you. Okay, so let's first look at how God asks us to judge others. Uh, I'm sure every single one of us has heard the phrase, don't judge me. Sometimes, probably, in a light-hearted way, you're cutting yourself that extra big slice of chocolate cake and somebody's giving you a look and don't judge me, and we say it a bit jokingly. But I suspect we've probably all said it in a bit more thought it and more serious things as well. I've heard people, I don't think I'm that judgmental a person, but I've heard people say it to me uh, quite a lot. And once or twice, I've actually then, it's been followed up by don't judge me, and Jesus said, you shouldn't judge. One person said that when I was challenging a behaviour that they were doing. And when they point to this verse, what they're going to point towards is um, a direct quote from Jesus, from Matthew's Gospel, in which Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. But what did Jesus actually mean when he said that? Did that statement of Jesus mean there's a blanket stop on us making any judgments about other people's behaviour? I think the simple answer to that is no, and I'll explain why for a few moments in a few minutes. Um, and one of the reasons is simply this. You can't live without making judgments about others, the world would be an absolute mess. Let's picture the scene. You're taking your practical driving test. You've hit a few cars and clipped a pedestrian, but don't worry, they weren't too badly hurt on the way. You're at the end. The examiner turns to you and says, so how do you think you did? You reply, well, I did better than I did on my one and only lesson that I've had so far. Examiner, okay, so do you think you did well enough to pass? And you've promised your friends you're going to drive them to a party tonight. So you say, yeah, I think I'm a quick learner. I think I should pass. And the examiner would have to reply, well, I can't judge you, so here's your certificate for you to go and get your licence. 
It would be an absolute mess. Would you want a world like that? And just think about, um, uh, just think about it as well. When you hear that phrase, don't judge me, 99 times out of 100 when you hear it, the person who is saying it is judging you as being judgmental. <laughs> they are being a hypocrite. Jesus can't mean we're not allowed to make judgments about other people. And that is actually what Jesus goes on to explain. That's the real meaning behind these words because if you took a sound bite from my sermon tonight, I'm sure you could make it sound like I was saying something that I was not. In part, in this teaching, Jesus goes on to say just a few lines later. He says, first, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the spreck from your brother's eye. It's quite a funny image that, isn't it? Um, uh, I think about having a plank stuck in your eye is a, is a pretty notable thing. You, you, you'd think people would realise it. Um, yet Jesus phrases it in a way that makes it seem like we almost don't realise we've got as this person's got a plank in, in their eye. But I think Jesus is doing that to highlight a really interesting point. And that's we all, as humans, we have this inbuilt tendency to judge ourselves far more leniently than we judge other people. Let's just go back to that example I used about the driving test. What the examiner asked was, how did you think you did? What did the person say? Well, not I hit three, car, three cars and clipped a pedestrian. Well, I, I, I did better then than I did on my one and only letter. He's judging himself on improvement. I doubt that was much consolation to the three cars that that person hit and the pedestrian uh, he clipped. I'm sure they would judge the driver much more harshly. But that is what we do, don't we? So, what is Jesus saying in this? How are we to judge people well? I think there's three simple things that, that we need to do. And the first is this, when we make judgments about other people, is we need to be people that seek the facts. A lot of our judgments and criticisms are unfair because we don't know the full facts. We jump in without knowing what is truly going on. I heard a story once of a dad who took his young daughter out. This is not a story from uh, my family. Uh, and that he knew they were going to be out for quite a lot of the morning, so he took um, some snacks with him, two apples. And they got halfway through the, the morning, and they were in a park, and the daughter came up to him and said, Ah, oh, I'm really hungry, Dad. Can we have the snacks? And the dad took the daughter to the bench, and they sat down, and he took the two um, apples out of the bag and said, said, Which apple do you want? And his young daughter looked and took one apple with one hand and then with the other hand went and grabbed the other apple. And the dad was a bit put off thinking, what is she doing? You know, she knows one's for me and one's for her. And he's thinking about this. And as she does this, the, the daughter takes a bite of the first apple, starts chewing on it. And then before she's even finished that mouthful, she turns to the other apple and bites home. <laughs> Starts doing the other one, a thoughtful look on her face. And the dad is like, this is not how I raise my daughter. She's supposed to be considerate. And he's thinking, and he's about to tell her off. And then all of a sudden, the daughter goes, 
offers him an apple and goes, here you go, Dad, have this one. It's much sweeter than the other one. (laughs) It's a cheesy story. But internally, the father was judging the young daughter of being uncaring and unconsiderate without knowing what was going on inside her mind. It's a lesson to take time and care before leaping in and thinking the worst. So seek the facts. Make judgments, is the second thing, based on love and commitment. Criticism and negative put down should never be the end goal when we're communicating with somebody. We shouldn't just want to go and tell somebody to take them down a peg or two. Our command as Christians is to love one another. When we go and challenge or bring judgment on people for how they've behaved, it should come out of a love and care for them for wanting what's best for them, to helping them to become more the person that Christ wanted them to be. So that's the first two. And and the third way I think the Bible asks us to judge others is also by allowing others to speak into your life. We struggle sometimes to see those planks in our eyes, as Jesus said. We need to allow people to speak to us and to challenge us, to help us remove our planks or specks or whatever they are that we have in our eyes. Have trusted friends that can help you see and know whether it's a problem you've got before you've jumped to thinking it's a problem someone else has. Wouldn't it be great if more people lived life like that? So what's this got to do, I might hear you ask, with God judging us? Well, because I think those principles are the way that God does in fact judge us. God judges us knowing all the facts. God knows each and every one of us without limits. Even if we have this outward appearance and everybody thinks we're wonderful and we make ourselves look better than we actually are, God knows the reality of what's going on in your heart, in your mind, behind closed doors. And that shouldn't scare you because he knows it and he still loves you. Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were messed up, while we were doing everything wrong, and even when we're still doing it, God still loves us. I wonder if you've ever had to uh, confess or tell somebody a uh, secret about yourself that perhaps you're slightly ashamed to. I've had to do it a few times, and you can get quite nervous about it, can't you? 
you're worried about the reaction that you're going to get from that person, whether you're going to go, wow, I never knew you like that, or, or a comment like that from them. But God already knows it. It's not hidden from him. Christ loves us and he knows we mess up. He's not going to reject us when we come openly and honestly to him. The second thing, the way God judges us, is he judges us as one who is fully committed to us. I just want to read you a, a quote. There's a book we um, gets passed around people as we prepare for our talks. So I want to read you a quote from it because I just thought it was really um, great and helpful it's by Anister McGrath. Um, he writes this, Jesus himself was condemned by biased judges, hostile crowds and an indifferent public prosecutor. We, on the other hand, will be judged by somebody who cares deeply for us and is sympathetic towards us. It is deeply comforting to recall that our judge lived on earth as one of us and knows firsthand what we have to go through. We're not being judged by someone with our own natural instincts for unfairness. We're, going, we're being judged by a God who came down to be with us as we've looked in previous weeks, previous lines in the creed. A God who is close to us and with us and understands. And the final point and the most important way we'll be judged is this. is whether we've listened to Jesus and sought his help. The most famous verse, or one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If we put our faith in Jesus, he will see us as sheep. I'm going to read to you some verses that I think are going to appear on the screen now from Matthew uh, 25. There's quite a lot of Bible verses that I could have picked out tonight about how Jesus judges and is coming again. But this is, um, this is Jesus um, himself uh, saying this. So this is Matthew 25, if you want to look it up, verse, um, what's it going to start sort of at, at verse 32, but there's a bit of verse 31 in there. So when the Son of Man, when Jesus comes, all nations will be gathered before him. That all nations there, the, the Greek is actually all people groups. So it's not even, it's even smaller than that. It's everybody, everybody is going to be gathered before him. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep will be on the right and the goats on the left. I want to encourage you. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because it's quite long. When you go home, read the rest of Matthew 25 from verse 31 onwards. Um, and trust me when I say this, you want to be on the right-hand side. You want to be a sheep. You do not want to be a goat. It's passages, when you read passages like this, there should be a real motivation for us to go and tell other people that don't know the good news of Jesus to, to go and tell them. But how do you, how do we, how do you know you're going to be a sheep and not a goat? Well, let me read another verse to you. 
Galatians 3, verses 26 to 27. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised, I think you can, you can read into that. For all of you who have put your trust in Jesus, into Christ, you have clothed yourself with Christ. All of you have clothed yourself with Christ. Christ who was the sacrificial lamb for us. The perfect, unblemished, spotless, pure lamb that took on our sin, our shame, our messed upness, whether it's public or secret, onto himself. Our identity is in Christ. He has clothed us as these sheep. I was trying to think of a really good analogy that worked with this, and I'm sorry, I'm going to default back to football. Roman Abramovich, one of the richest people in the world. And he owns Chelsea Football Club. I want you to imagine that you absolutely love football, um, that you absolutely love Chelsea. I might know that might be the hardest thing I've asked some of you to ever, ever do. I don't actually like Chelsea that much, but go with me for this analogy. Roman Abramovich, who owns Chelsea and can pretty much do whatever he wants with it, he comes up to you and says, with a contract, says, I want you to be a Chelsea player. Sign here. And he's rich, he's going to pay you loads of money. And you sign it, he goes, there you are, there's your shirt. You are now a Chelsea player. Now, you might not be any good at football. You might be a million miles away from being what you think is a professional, the go-getters, those that are going to get out on the pitch that people are cheering for you. But your identity is as a Chelsea player. Roman Van Rich wants you and there's nothing nobody else is ever going to do about it. And there's going to be coaches and people around you that are going to help you train and get better and all that. But your identity is as a player for Chelsea. That is what it is when we put our faith in Christ. That is who our identity is. That is what we are seen as. Even if we might feel like we're messed up a million miles away. Our identity is as a child of God, as one of Jesus' sheep. And he encourages us to go on a journey with him, listening to him, trusting in his words, putting our, our, our faith, our, our hope in him, and growing and hopefully becoming more Christ-like on the way. So as I finish, uh, and as I've gone through that, I hope that line, if it did send shivers down your spine, it has maybe made you think a little bit more about how incredible God's love is. That actually if we put our trust in Christ, judgment is nothing to be feared because he will see us as his children when we do that. And I hope as well as we go about our lives this week and interact with others, we can bring a bit of Christ-like judgment into our lives, in the way we interact, in the way we look, and in the way we love people around us.